Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hello, and welcome to today's Dornside Dialogue, how to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. I'm Sarah Sturm, Senior Director of Alumni Relations for USC Dornside. I've got just a few housekeeping notes before we get started. If you would like to rewatch or share today's discussion, we're going to make a recording available on the Dornside Dialogues page of our website within the next day or two, and we'll also share this on our Facebook page. Now, I'll turn it over to a message from Amber Miller, Dean of the USC Dornside College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. Welcome back to Dornsife Dialogues. Our conversation today is in collaboration with our Center for the Political Future, our go-to source for civil, fact-based debate on substantive issues. Political divisiveness has reached dangerous height in today's world. It's infected our political system, created toxic echo chambers on social media, and resulted in estrangement between family members, neighbors, and colleagues. We as a society need a collective reminder about how to have challenging conversations about difficult topics. And there is no better institution to lead the way back than universities, places that have always celebrated rigorous debate and championed free speech. We have three terrific experts with us today who will offer their insights on what we can do to embrace this mindset and bring it to our communities. Kame Akavan is the Executive Director of the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. Before arriving at Dornsife, he was the CEO of ProCon.org, one of the nation's leading sources of nonpartisan research on controversial topics. Sangeeta Shrestova serves as the Director of Research and Co-PI for Civic Paths Group at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Civic Paths is designed to provide new ways to involve students in discussions of politics and precipitory culture. And finally, we welcome Monica Guzman to USC. Monica is a communication leader at Braver Angels, a nonprofit that seeks to depolarize America. She recently published a book entitled, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. I'd like to thank our panelists in advance for what I'm sure is going to be a terrific conversation. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Thank you to our fabulous Dean Amber Miller. We appreciate that. Welcome very much. Folks, you're here for a conversation about how to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. That is the focus of our talk today. My name is Kami Akaban. I'm the executive director of the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. And I'm joined today by... Hi, I'm Sankita Shostova. I'm based at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, where I co-run a group called Civic Paths. Um, I'm the director of programs and research there. Um, and I am delighted to bring Monica to USC. We first met Monica, I think it was in the fall, and she visited our Civic Paths group, actually, and really upended our thinking um, on many issues and also on how we approach conversation within our own group. So I'm really delighted to be able to bring you here. Um, I feel like the, um, you already got an introduction, Monica. I also want to say that uh, I want to add a few things from your bio here because you mm-hmm. also um, I are a journalist and an entrepreneur and you co-founded the Evergrey and Ever Award World award-winning newsletter and community in Seattle. 
And he also served as an advisor to Braver Angels, a national organization out to depolarize America and together Washington, an organization building collaborative local relationships among leaders in Washington state. Um, I'm sure we'll learn even more about what you do through this conversation. So I'm actually going to start us out with a quick question. Um, you know, many people who are here today and watching this probably haven't yet had a chance to pick up your book and read it. I'm hoping that they will after today, of course. Um, and so just to help them get oriented, I'd, I'd, I'd like to ask you to just provide a quick introduction, you know, a quick kind of takeaway from your book. What would you like people to take away from it? Mm-hmm. Um, why did you write it and who did you write it for? Yeah. So here's the book. I never thought of it that way. You'll notice the eyes. The main reason I wrote this book is because we are so divided, we're blinded. We have gotten to the point where when we are asked to guess at what is it that people believe on the other side of the political divide, we get it wrong. We're way off. We're surrounded by misperceptions that are in the environments that we're in, the silos that we create for ourselves through technology, the communities where we just happen to live. And this is a crisis because a world that does not see itself can't solve its problems, can't get a lot done. But it's also a more personal crisis. And so I wrote this book for anyone who wants to do something about the heartbreak, confusion, and madness of these dangerously divided times. I think about the people who are breaking relationships in their own family because of concerns about harm, about ideas spreading, about the pain that comes from listening to certain things when when we're it's such a high level of anxiety. I think about the people who are not being seen, the conversations that are not being had. When we are in times of deep fear and anxiety, we want to jump to jump to conclusions. Um, scientists call that manufacturing certainty and the need for closure. So we will reach for certainty, but certainty is the arch villain of curiosity and a curious culture is the only kind of culture that will allow this world to see itself, that will allow us to see each other. And then one more thing I'll say about why I wrote this book is it's very personal to me. I am a journalist. I've been a journalist my whole career. I know that it is possible to understand all sorts of people and highly illuminating. And I'm also the very proud liberal daughter of Mexican immigrants who voted for Trump. I am also a Mexican immigrant. And so those those stories are in the book too. The relationship that I have with my parents, the conversations that we've been able to have together have done a lot to clarify our view of the other side and of each other. Monica, the way you explain that is so inspirational. You are an inspiration to many in this country. And I had a, a question for you that addresses another uh, woman. It's it's Women's History Month this March. And I wanted to ask you a question with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in mind. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I acknowledge our partners for today's event, responsible for bringing today's event to all of you includes the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. It includes the Civic Paths Group at USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. It includes the USC Culture Journey. It includes Dornsife College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. 
We have our partners at Braver Angels at the Village Square and at Citizen Connect. This event is being live streamed on Facebook as well, and we appreciate all of their support. If you have good questions, we'll try to sprinkle them in throughout our conversation. But I promised you a question related to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, so here it is. Mm-hmm. She was married for 56 years. You know, she famously had long-standing friendships with her ideological adversaries like Justice Scalia. For many, she's a model of bridge building. When someone asked her about her secret of marriage, she said, in every great partnership, it sometimes helps to be a little deaf. And I wondered, <laughs> what do you make of her advice? And specifically, is it sometimes helpful to be able to turn the other cheek or have thick enough skin to ignore annoying or offensive comments? When, when do you think it's okay to ignore, let it go versus confront and make a point? Wow. Well, I think the key word is relationship. If you are in relationship, then there is more at stake for you than being right or than being persuasive. So the relationship has its own rhythm and its own purpose. And it is always the place where trust can be built. And when I think about our most rife, you know, tricky arguments, they happen in climates where there is not a lot of trust. And so it seems silly to want to put anything ahead of the argument, the fight, whatever it is that we feel we have to represent and we have to push. We have to push it now in this conversation and in the next one and the next one. What we miss when we do that, though, is the necessity of connections and of relationships. And in particular, the necessity of connections and relationships across difference. Um, so this, this goes for any community that wants to continue to learn any community that wants to continue to be open. Does that mean that there will be moments that you will ignore an opportunity to jump in? I wouldn't frame it that way, but essentially, yes. The way I would frame it is a conversation that is going to be truly curious, that is going to be truly productive across difference, needs certain conditions to be met in order for the likelihood of its success to happen and to be high. So among those are, time? Do you actually have time? And does the other person have time to go into this topic? Uh, attention? Are you sure that the other person isn't multitasking on a bunch of tabs or, you know, waiting for someone to join them at a restaurant? Like, you don't know that online. You may know that in person. Parody is really important. If I comment on someone's Twitter thread or Facebook post or whatever, they can hide my comment. They could delete my comment. We are not at a level. Then there's containment, which is super important. Is the conversation contained to the people actually engaging in the conversation? We rarely think how weird it is that a lot of our conversations that happen on these bigger, scalable platforms happen to an audience that is invisible, and we don't even know what they're thinking. And so, of course, what happens is we are more tempted to perform perspectives, grab talking points that give us shelter, rather than actually explore our own honest perspectives. And then finally, embodiment, which is the full human toolbox of communication. Right now, I'm using my voice, my gestures, um, my face. But if I were texting with you, I wouldn't have most of those things. So it's really about a consciousness of what, what kind of conditions are being met. How high are the dials turned up on each of those five things? And it just may not be the right moment to jump in. To, to, to talk about something, especially with someone with whom you have a relationship or want to keep that glue. 
And, and I would say that on, on a certain societal level, we cannot let all of that go melt away. I have a follow-up question about that because you, you know, we talk a lot about, right, building bridges right now. We talk mm-hmm. about crossing the divide and building the bridges. And you have this sentence, I think it's at the end of one of your chapters, mm-hmm. that we should be keeping the bridges and not crossing them. And I think this is a really important argument and, and, and contribution that you make. And I'd love, you, I'd love for you to explain a little bit more what you mean by that. Yeah, this goes to when a lot of us hear about bridging. And again, when you think about what feels at stake, how, how anxious these times are, how, how divided we all feel and, and how that sits in our hearts and minds. When people talk about bridging, naturally, a lot of folks go to the hardest possible bridge they could imagine building. And they go, oh my gosh, these people want me to do that. They want me to talk to a Nazi tomorrow. No, <laughs> that is not, that is not what is necessary. That is not what we need to be discussing. What we need to be discussing is far easier. It may still be psychologically challenging, but it is far easier. And what does it take to be more curious? What I argue in the book is, We do need a more curious culture, and there are very small steps we can each take. And one of the smallest is to not burn a bridge that we otherwise would have burned, to leave the bridge open. I have, um, you know, several people have come to me and said, hey, look, Monica, I tried. I sat down with my uncle. I sat down with my sister, with my relative, with my colleague, and I was curious. Promise you I was curious. I asked all kinds of questions. I withheld my judgment for an hour, for two hours. And you know what? They didn't ask me any questions back. They just talked at me. They weren't budging. And so then they'll go, that's it. This doesn't work. I'm done. That was exhausting and wearying. And clearly this person wasn't moving. So, so I'm burning that bridge. And I think about a couple of things. Um, I'm thinking right now coming to mind is my friend Melina. Um, who's here in Seattle and she is, she is lesbian. And just recently she felt like her family finally accepted that. It took 20 years. Her father, um, is deeply religious. And what she witnessed was this process for both her parents. Both her parents are deeply religious where they had to transform themselves into people who could believe that they could be good in their faith and love their daughter for who she was. This was difficult for them to do. And she got to the point where she appreciated that difficulty and that she couldn't control that journey. So she and I had a really interesting conversation about that. She left that bridge open. It was painful for a long time, but here they are today. I'm so glad, Sayidi, that you brought up the point about leaving the bridge open, but not necessarily crossing it. And to you, Monica, for for not burning the bridges. One of the questions I get a lot is the value in building the bridge. And I'll give an example. So as of today, I think the United Nations reported there's over 10 million Ukrainians that have been displaced by the Russian invasion of their country. A lot of them think you don't make nice with Vladimir Putin. Uh, you don't, like you, you mentioned Nazis, you don't make nice with Nazis. You don't make nice with the oppressor. What is the value of building a bridge 
to people who tell lies, who are vile, who, mm-hmm. who are murderous? You know, what, what is the value of that? And I know you have thought through this before. And I know you, you mentioned that it, it can be an extreme example, but it's an extreme example that's, that's real and in the world today. So what do you say for people who are really reluctant and opposed to wanting to make nice with the other side because yeah. they just find them reprehensible? Yeah. I mean, first I'll say, look, like no one's going to jump into a conversation because I say they should, right? Like these kinds of things are personal decisions and no one else can make it for anybody. So. Hopefully, like nobody feels this sort of pressure that, you know, you'll do it when you feel compelled and persuaded. And that's great. And you'll take the small steps you will take. And that's great. Now, the thing about, you know, I did say you don't have to say you don't have to talk to a Nazi tomorrow. You really don't. There are people who do. And they find extraordinary value. The world finds extraordinary value. A very famous example is Daryl Davis, a blues musician who has spent several years driven by what to me is an extraordinarily radically true question, radically perceptive and illuminating. How can you hate me if you don't even know me? Daryl is a black man. He has converted hundreds of former white supremacists, I mean Ku Klux Klan members, he has their robes now. He has led them away from that. He has befriended many of them. Now, when people hear about his story, you know, again, the idea is, I can't do that. And and that's okay. Daryl's been working on this a long time. There's another story, though, that I think of. And um, I don't know if you all have ever heard of Derek Black. So Derek Black was the heir apparent to uh, a big part of the white supremacist movement in the United States. I believe it was, was it his father or his uncle who ran Stormfront, which is a website for the white supremacist movement. And he really was the heir apparent, extremely intelligent person and really like behind the movement in every way. His family, his community was all of it. He ended up disowning the entire thing leaving his life behind at enormous personal cost, because again, all of his deepest relationships were with fellow white supremacists. And he did it because of conversations he had at New College, uh, the New College in Florida. So he went to college there. You know, he didn't tell anyone who he was, but eventually it got out and the campus erupted in controversy. A lot of people wanted him gone. He was shunned as, you know, not surprising. And there was this student, an Orthodox Jewish student named Matthew. And every Shabbat, he had Shabbat dinners uh, at his apartment. And lots of students came. And he decided, I'm going to invite Derek. And his friends were like, you what? Well, we're not coming. A bunch of people left the dinners. And he did. He invited Derek. And I actually, this story, if anyone wants to hear about it, this is one of the most incredible stories I think ever told about building bridges. It's in the book Rising Out of Hatred by Eli Saslow, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter at the Washington Post. And Eli ended up talking to Derek, talking to Matthew, talking to a woman named Allison, who initially like could not talk to Derek and ended up befriending him and even loving him. And asking lots 
of questions. People on campus asked him lots of questions. But so it took a long time. It took a long time. But Derek began questioning his assumptions as a result of forming new relationships with people he had complete misperceptions about, people he wasn't seeing clearly. And as a result of those relationships, that movement lost its heir apparent. He, again, left his family, left his community. They didn't understand. There was a lot of personal pain. That gets covered in the story, too. But just like Daryl Davis, thanks to Daryl Davis, you know, there are hundreds of fewer people consumed by hate. And thanks to the students at New College in Florida, Derek Black is no longer consumed by hate the way he was. And they chose to see him, to talk to him. And not only that, an Orthodox Jewish student who Derek's ideology told him was not worthy, he led the way. So, Bill, you know, kind of thinking of with this story in mind, we're getting some questions um, that are coming in through the chat around this particular moment in history, um, the current divided moment that we find ourselves in, um, the vitriol of formal politics and the political discourse. And the question is, why is there something about this particular moment that finds us even more divided than we have been in the past? Mm-hmm. And and what is your take on why that is, if that is um or is this just us perceiving the current moment because we're living in the current moment? Right. No, and I love this question because perspective is a thing that we could all use more of. And history provides wonderful perspective. There was a moment of division in the United States where we killed 700,000 people, the Civil War. Uh, there was a moment in the 20s and 30s where the Ku Klux Klan was so powerful that several sitting like members of Congress and governors were card-carrying members of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, we know about the 60s and civil rights movement. We know about the violence and the assassinations. You know, have we not experienced division before? No, of course we have. We've experienced enormous division. And we have learned from each period, but through a lot of pain. But somehow we have learned. So I, I have enjoyed looking at those periods myself in my research because of the, because of the hope they give. Now, here's what, there are things that are different about this divided moment. Um, in my book, I talk about the SOS. Uh, the SOS, the call for help. And SOS stands for sorting, othering, and siloing. These are three totally natural dynamics and forces of human nature that have led us to this particular moment. The first is sorting. So sorting is the natural tendency to want to be around people who are like us especially in times of stress, because it's easier. It's comfortable. We have enough going on. We don't, we don't need any more. We don't need any more difficulty. In recent years, especially very recently, we have, we have seen that something we were afraid was happening, but weren't totally sure is totally happening, which is that blue zip codes are getting bluer. Red zip codes are getting redder. I'm, I'm talking about the political red and blue. Uh, Nobody wants to live in a community where they don't feel heard or accepted. They're going to go where they do. Then we have othering. Othering is the natural tendency to push, to put distance between ourselves and those we deem different. The social science about othering is chilling and terrifying because it turns out the difference doesn't even have to be very meaningful for us to begin to discriminate against the outgroup. So when the difference is meaningful, 
as it certainly feels it is today, where we stack a lot of things in two, in two binaries, you know, we stack a lot of things there. Um, and, uh, and we point to the other side and go, man, they do not get it. And that not only do they not get it, they are immoral and they are hurting us and they are hurting everything. And that kind of othering is you know, really, really tense right now in, in an extraordinary way. And then finally siloing. And this is the one that is the most different from other periods of time. And the reason is media and technology. So thanks to media and technology, we can pack our little traveling things with our own custom worlds. We can pick our neighbors. We can pick our neighbors on our platforms. We can decide who gets to influence and inspire us, whose thoughts we're going to hear generously, and whose thoughts are going to be filtered as coming in from some other group. You know, that is pretty unprecedented. (laughs) That ability to do that, the amount of words flying at us and information flying at us, um, how all-consuming it can be and how it has even replaced our spontaneous interactions. You know, nobody waits in line for coffee anymore. Nobody does that anymore. We're looking at our phones, you know? Nobody looks around, says hi to the person next to them. I, I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect. Obviously, some of us do. But it's, it's not just the silos. It's the, the domination of those spaces over what can be more spontaneous and serendipitous opportunities for serendipitous connections with people who can surprise us. So that's the SOS. Monica, I wanted to ask you then a related question because you mentioned in your book this concept that we're not really as divided as we think we are and that there's a lot of misperception about the other side. And I'm just thinking as an example, like, if I think the corporate tax rate should be 25%, you think it should be 20%. Mm-hmm. Who cares, right? Or- it's a difference of opinion. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, yeah. uh, and we don't have to, to hate each other for it, but there's some, some issues that tend to be a little more divisive. But I think the point you're making is that it's not about difference of opinion on issues. It's really about this sort of how our identities get mm-hmm. challenged and how we feel challenged and threatened by, by these perspectives by the perspectives, not so much the ideologies. And I think that's where a lot of misperception of, of social division comes from, that it's really about issues and differences on issues. But it's mm-hmm. you you pointed out that it's it's much deeper and more than that. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about those mm-hmm. underlying factors that make it feel like we're not just disagreeing on issues. We are yeah. battling identities and feeling threatened and combative. I'm so glad you brought that up because I've been thinking a lot about this is and this, I think, is a result of our silos as well and technology and media and the ways that we happen to be communicating today. There are people and there are our ideas. And those have done this. People are their ideas. You go online, you know, you go to Twitter and you'll see a lot of people put right at the level of their name, their cause. And they might even have in their profile something like unfollow if you disagree. You know, I am my idea. This matters to me. And that's not to be taken lightly. There are high stakes issues. There are issues that feel like if you disagree with this idea, you don't think I can be who I am. You're not seeing me. I mean, what a, what a deep challenge, you know, what a deep challenge to the traditional idea of the marketplace of ideas and all that. 
But ultimately for me, it's, it's, it is, it's that conflation of ideas with people. Despite the fact that many ideas do feel like they, by their very existence, attack someone's identity. The person who holds that idea is still not defined by it. And in the spaces where we tend to converse, that is not clear or visible or often even, we don't remember that. I say in the book, the internet is a non-place that makes us into non-people. It is extraordinarily difficult to see people in spaces that don't allow for that. Instead, what we see is opinions. And, and that's, in fact, it's become our calling card. You know, if you've ever been on social platforms feeling this pressure to have an opinion on the latest thing, well, boy, you better have an opinion on everything. You better have an opinion on this and this. And this. <laughs> like, wow, you know, that, that's, that's, that's where we've, that's where we've come to. Our opinions are, are our faces. That's how people see us and judge us. So my goodness, it like how difficult it is to explore vulnerably our views to put them out there openly and invite criticism, you know, of the idea. Because, well, if you invite criticism of the idea, you invite an attack on yourself. Um, that's, that's really risky. Um, and so that's, that's what I think about is recognizing again that it is separate. Derek Black was his whole life was built around white supremacy until it wasn't so on that sort of thread you know i what is your advice to somebody who's curious who wants to have these conversations but is has maybe a little bit of what you're just described going mm-hmm. on and is just really afraid um is, is scared feel you know not only just vulnerable but actually fearful um yeah. What what would you recommend? I mean, what are your thoughts for somebody like that? I have a lot, and I don't think we have time to go through all of them. <laughs> this is so hard, you guys. This is so hard. You know, I mean, if if I've learned anything, having a lot of one on one conversations with a lot of people, very vulnerably about the pain of this era, you can't sum it up, and you can't put it into a slogan and hope that it like travels all across. You know, th- this is different for every person. And that's so important to acknowledge first and foremost. I'll go back to what I said before, which is we tend to think of the scariest thing that we could do and think that that's the only thing we could do. And it's simply not, right? We talked about how not burning a bridge that you otherwise would is already a step toward being more curious. And it may not be that hard depending on your situation. It might also feel impossible and that's okay. Um, another thing is that you can, the easiest curious conversation you can have, the one that is difficult to excuse, excuse, is um, curious conversations with yourself. So, okay, it's too scary to talk to someone who disagrees with you. Cool. Then try this. Next time you encounter a perspective online, in an article, the person's not there. It's just their idea. and. You're going, ugh, well, that's ridiculous. But then you go, okay, well, this comes from a source, you know, that may be reputable. All right, I'm going to, let me, let me open it up. Question your own assumptions as you read the piece. 
I've done this over and over and over again. Social psychology shows us that when we approach ideas that um, challenge our own, we immediately mentally shut the door to them. Before we've even read them, we've gone. Curiosity is a doorstop. Put down the doorstop. Leave the door open a bit. Read that article and ask yourself questions like, what is the deep down honest concern that this person is trying to express and have addressed? Or what is the strongest argument on this side? If I am generous to it, how can I generously articulate the strongest argument on this side? Those two questions will do wonders for your own ability to catch your assumptions in the act. Now, again, the reason this matters is because we really are in a time, and the social science shows us, shows us this, where we have rampant misperceptions. We are wrong about each other. And uh, we cannot trust our gut all the way. We have to check it. We have to recognize that people are mysteries, and the biggest assumption of all is that you can solve a mystery from a distance or that you can solve it really at all. We've been interviewing guests on Let's Find Common Ground for about two years now. Richard, what have you learned from them? Ashley, I've been surprised that despite all of the polarization around us, that there are so many remarkable people working to find common ground. Every two weeks, we release new episodes of our podcast. There are more than 50 of them. Find them all on the Democracy Group website. Or at letsfindcommonground.org. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. I'm Richard Davies. We find common ground one episode at a time. You brought up the word trust, and a lot of times in our conversations, we assume we have the same set of facts when conversing with with the other person. Uh, we're getting some really good questions in our Q&A here. Here's one from Terry Friedlander. I'll read a few because they're similar. Terry Friedlander asks, how do we have fearlessly curious conversations with the phenomenon of fake news and disinformation yeah. when politicians on both sides of the aisle drive on outrageous statements and fact and distortion yeah. and creation? A related question from Josh DeGao, how do you address opinions that are based on misinformation? Right. So what, what do you think if you can't even agree on the facts and you can't correct someone with the facts? they like, yeah. oh, you got it all wrong. Here's the facts. That doesn't change minds. Yeah. No, it doesn't. Going up to someone saying you're wrong, let me tell you why. Not effective. <laughs> it's just <laughs> not work. Uh, we can try it. Like, people certainly try it. There's mic drop moments all the time, you know, on you know social platforms where you imagine somebody going, well, I showed them. You didn't show them anything. <laughs> you know, but most of the time that that kind of tactic just retrenches people. We know that. Um, but we keep we keep doing it anyway. <laughs> like my mom used to say, you know, you, you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. Uh, so, yeah. And and here's there's a couple things to say. Uh, and I will uh, borrow a really wonderful concept from my friend Buster Benson, who is uh, also an author and wrote a book called Why Are We Yelling? And he talks about a couple of different sort of realms of conversation. And one of them is the realm of what is true. What is true? That you know, there's lots of conversations arguing about what is ultimately true. There's another realm 
that Braver Angels focuses on that I think a lot about, and that is what is meaningful. What is meaningful to people? So that is ultimately, I think, my best advice. When you are talking to someone and you realize that your facts are different, that you are living in different realities. And first of all, let's just acknowledge that that is, that is happening. There are people who, it, our, our media are so split. Everything is so split up that essentially people are, diff- are living in different realities. So when you run into that, your instinct is going to be to say, well, that's it. I'm out. Um, you know, if I go any further, uh, it can only go down from hill from here. And we can talk about the different concerns of harm um, maybe later in this conversation. Uh, but you do not have to keep the conversation at the level of what is true. And I know that it sounds like, well, that's the only conversation there is to have, but it's not. You can get to the conversation about what is meaningful. So the question that I suggested for when you're reading even an article and you're having a conversation with yourself, what is the concern? What is the deep down honest concern that is informing this perspective? Works. Whenever you, you, you feel that you're confronting someone whose perspective is based on what you feel very strongly is bloating. It works then because here's the thing. Fake news only travels because people connect to something about it that feels true. And most of the time, that's a concern. You know, I could say a lot more. I'm a journalist, right? So like I pay a lot of attention to this. But to me, the bad actors who are, who are creating disinformation, they are exploiting an incurious culture that doesn't know how to listen to each other's truth. The truth that goes beyond facts. The truth that comes from the paths we walk and our experiences and how we view our lives, that can never be fake news. That will never be fake news. So it's, 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 can you get behind the false conclusions? Can you get behind what, what looks to be very much a false conclusion and, and ask people what is meaningful to them? What, it, what is it, what is it that, that gives them comfort? What is it that gives them hope? What is it that worries them? And you may find something to relate to there. So on this, on this, in the sort of spirit of finding us, finding the connection, we're getting a number of questions around what if somebody else is not willing to speak to you? I'm just going to, again, I think to also honor the people who are asking the question from Narayan and Raju, we have any suggestions on how to have conversations with religious exclusivists who insist that only their version of God is valid and other versions are invalid. Another one from Eve Stern is, is it hope, is it hopeless if the quote unquote other aren't open to having a conversation? Um, and then there was another one from Mark Veter, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing people's names. How do you talk with people who are in agreement with you, but are constantly attacking others who don't? So all of these questions are talking about, you know, how do you, if the other side is, or the other person is not connecting with you in the way that mm-hmm. you've just been describing, what do you, how do you handle that? What do you do? What's your, how do you oh, man. And this is, you know, this is, I think, something no one wants to hear, but we can't control other people. We can't. We can, we can demand that, you know, they be, they be as open-minded about their convictions as we are ready to be about ours, if that's where we're at, but we cannot control them. In the book, I tell a story about a wonderful philosopher here in Washington State named David Smith, and he opened my eyes to the nature of opinions in a way that was really transformative and that, and that I try really hard to convey in the book. And the way he did that was by saying in, in the first 
place that I ever encountered him was, was on a, on a panel discussion. And he said, we do not choose our opinions. We do not choose our opinions. They arrive. They are the result of, uh, they are naturally recur- occurring things that come up as a result of our lives. So David, the way he knows this is through a lot of pain. Uh, David grew up a fundamentalist Christian, very, very happy and fulfilled in a very tight-knit community that, that gave him a lot of meaning. And he went to a university um, to study more of theology. And he had, he had believed that his faith was, I mean, supreme, right? Supreme, very exclusionary, just like there's nothing, there's nothing to be gained from, you know, in fact, like the people who believe other things, well, they must be somewhat inferior as well. Like it's not just the faith. And, and then he started to meet people of different faiths, you know, Muslims and Jews and you know, all kinds of people at this university. And, and a seed was planted and things began to change. 15 years later, 15 years later, he was on the cusp of tenure and he couldn't sleep because he realized he no longer believed as dogmatically in, in the faith that he had. And believing in that was, was going to be a criterion for accepting tenure. And he had to throw it all away. He did not choose the opinion. He lost friends. He lost his community. He lost a lot. But the evidence, he said, worked on him. The evidence worked on him and made him change his mind. Now, in the book, I follow this up, and I'm going to do it here as well, with a story uh, about uh, another person who had a similar kind of change in their face. It happened over the course of a couple of years, but it went in the opposite direction, where he started by saying, Christianity is bunk, religion is ridiculous, this is, it's so othering and it's so terrible. He had, he had his reasons. And then his then girlfriend, uh, gave this beautiful quote to him about love. And he said, where is that from? Did you write that? And she said, no, it's from the Bible. And that began a journey for John that ended up with him reading the whole Bible and becoming a very committed Christian. So I, so when, when we say the evidence works on us, it does not work on all of us in the same way. It depends on the container. An idea is not in and of itself all that powerful and persuasive. It's the container that it drops into. It's did you, is, is your mind and heart fertile ground for this idea? That will determine what happens as a result of being exposed to it. Nothing else. So please feel free to repeat the question if I didn't all the way address it, uh, because this was a story that came to mind. Yeah, I think I'm going to push a little bit on this because I, it is important. It's, it's, it was really, if you are, if you are getting a non-engagement or a refusal right, to engage, right. um, curiously engage from the person you're trying to speak with. Um, yes, exactly. So, so the story of David, uh, basically says it's not going to happen on your terms. I mean, if somebody, if somebody is at the point now, you know, in those 15 years, David was having lots of conversations. But in the beginning, he was more resistant, right? Um, and so you don't know where people are on their willingness to, 
to have certain conversations on certain topics. That's true. And really, the more attached that people feel feel in their identity to a certain belief, the more difficult we can expect it will be for them to peel themselves as people away from that belief enough to allow some room, some room to flow. Okay, but back to the advice piece. <laughs> what you don't want to do is go in guns blazing. What you don't want to do is go in trying to change their minds or trying to change them at all. And in fact, that's a really key distinction. When we go in trying to change people, we can't understand them. You cannot understand a mind you're trying to outmaneuver or defeat. And you can't build trust with that mind and heart either. So there is, there is sort of like a truth seeking, debatey kind of thing happening over here. But then there's trust building and trust building is the thing that you need before you can get to the level of debate and rhetoric argument, um, especially if the level of difficulty and attachment is high. You have to build the trust first. That means take your dreams about persuasion and throw them away. Throw them away. If you hold them too tightly, the other person can tell. They can read right through that. If you if you play a game, a lot of them are here to change your mind, but you totally are. They can tell. So don't do it. Just let go of that. And I know, again, that's really hard to do, especially for things that feel painful. It's extremely hard to do. But what I'll say is there's no other thing to do. Just about everything else, when you come on too strong, will just push the person away. So work on building the trust. And remember this. That when you do go in trying to change people, that's not curiosity. That's condescension. And people don't stand for that. Okay, I appreciate that you said that. And that's very much been my ex- my experience as well. I think it's chemically true that the brain releases the same chemicals when they feel heard as when you feel loved. Yeah. It is an, a very powerful thing. And when you listen to someone, listen with the intent to understand, uh, that, that helps to develop the trust. And then with that trust, you have a power and that power can be to ultimately influence. But if you don't have that trust, forget the influence. Forget it. Yeah, exactly. I, you, you told a story about a David and I want to share a quick story about another David. This is a prominent rabbi here in Los Angeles, David Suisa. He's a very good storyteller and he's telling me about the most important characteristic in humanity. It's one word and I'm hanging on to like, what's the word? He goes, and it's not freedom. Like, oh, freedom's a big word. It's not freedom. Okay. It's not passion. Okay. It's, it's not love. Like, gosh, well, wow. what's left? He goes, <laughs> it's curiosity. Yeah. He put curiosity at the top of everything. And I thought that was so interesting. And you clearly put curiosity at the top. And that segues to my question here. This is one from Janet McIntyre. She's asking about cancel culture. Says it seems to automatically eliminate the opportunity to be curious, to learn and possibly restore relationship. And another similar question from Felix Vasquez, who says, shouldn't our ideas be challenged? It's my, been his experience that it's hard to grow without new information, whether or not it agrees with your point of view. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the importance of curiosity in those contexts. Oh, my gosh. Again, this is one where, like, I could go on all day, so I'll just try to, <laughs> try to be free. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is all about curiosity. I I've done a lot of reflection on listening. You know, listening is a word that we throw out a lot. You got to listen, you know, 
here's what listening is, here's where it's not. And the idea is, well, listening is paying attention, it's being present. Okay, great, cool, cool. But what what I've come to to believe is that at its core, really truly listening to, to the point of, of its greatest power is about showing people that they matter. Because at the end of the day, that is the one thing that connects us all. Everyone wants to be seen. Everyone wants to be heard. Everyone. There is just not an exception by someone. They want to, they don't all need to be heard by everyone, but they need to be heard by someone. So here we are at a time in our world where we're going through a lot of transitions. You know, I, I had some, somebody kind of reach out to me and make a really compelling case that as a society, we have undergone a lot of trauma in a very short amount of time. And this person like included all sorts of events with dates, you know, and was saying, well, these big things happen in our history, but look at how many great, crazy things are happening all at once. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of trauma. And trauma it creates fear and fear kills curiosity. You can't, you can't wonder about something you think is out to get you. Um, instead, what you'll do is reach for certainty, which we talked about. Uh, and, and you can't, you, if you, if you think you know, you won't think to ask. So, so yeah, it's, it's the, the thing that I'm, the thing that I know that we can be is a world that sees itself. And I think we need to change the question in a lot of contexts and a lot of cultures where this is a, an issue and maybe this resonates with some folks. I think in a lot of spaces, we are asking a fearful question. And the fearful question is, how can we protect ourselves from people who do not see us? It's a very understandable question. And I think we can ask a more courageous one. How do we build a world in which more people can be seen? So one is about the lines we draw, the walls we build, and it's based on a sense of we need protection. Makes a lot of sense. The other calls us into a, a bigger project and one that turns these traumas and problems into possibilities and one that allows us to be creative. I've been in the startup world for a long time too. I'm an entrepreneur and I've worked in technology and there's a lot of science about creativity and fear kills creativity too. So creativity and curiosity and listening, it's all, it's all the same bucket. It's all the same bucket. Uh, a curious world is one that is not too afraid to see itself. And if we can take even small steps to a more curious world, more of us will be seen, not fewer. So we've been speaking a lot in sort of more general terms. And there's one question that has come in that is profoundly personal. And I'm actually going to share it because I think, it, it, you know, it's a specific instance and somebody's asking for help. So I feel like I have yeah. to honor this question. Sure. Um, it's from an anonymous attendee. And the question is, appear to be getting involved in something we as parents do not believe in. For example, teens are very into, quote-unquote, gender ideology. But as a parent and mother, mother being capitalized, I cannot deny the existence of women, women capitalized. I don't want to alienate my child, but I also cannot entertain what I fear, fear our lies. Help. Thank you, Monica. Wow. Okay. Well, I see in that, I see in that the seeds of curiosity. 
the, the, the piece of that that I would ask this person to question is I cannot understand what I think are lies. So, all right, cool. That's, that's a, that's a thing that sits in your heart, in your mind. Like that here I will not go. You know, we all have those. We all have our lines that are just really hard to cross. What you also have is a relationship that you treasure. And that's the power of relationships is relationships when there are lines we cannot cross. You know, someone can hold your hand as you cross it. So, (laughs) and maybe that's your daughter. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is an invitation to curiosity. Um, You you do feel that, that there are lies, that there are facts that are being tossed out i think that that's relatable to a lot of people on a lot of issues can you get to the level of what is meaningful and start there um can you set aside can you set aside the concern about it being a lie not deny it but just put it over here while you talk to your daughter and hear her out because she's she's in a different generation that is growing up with all kinds of different conversations around gender. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm 39 years old. Like, you know, I, I am also surprised and invited <laughs> to learn a lot. Um, and invited to have reactions where I go, no, with, with stuff around gender all the time. I, I think there's a lot of folks just kind of, you know, nervous about this and other issues, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we are incapable of hearing each other out and that we shouldn't. And, and I think that the, you know, the, the deepest reason is that relationship, particularly if for your daughter, this is really important. Well, then one way you see her is by seeing the ways in which it is important. Monica, I really appreciate that, uh, that answer that you gave. And we're coming really close to time here. So I wanted to uh, do a couple things. I wanted to give a couple of quotes that are very much in the theme of what you've been saying because you've inspired us in so many ways and given us practical tips. Build bridge, but don't necessarily cross it. Listen with the intent to understand uh, that there are some conversations that can be unproductive. Take the steps when you're ready. You've given us a lot of practical advice. And it reminds me of, of a quote from Arthur Brooks of the American Enterprise Institute who said, we don't need to disagree less. We need to disagree better. Uh, and I think that's the point that you're making. And similarly, our, our Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who we'd lost recently, he said, uh, don't raise your voice, improve your argument. Uh, and I think you're saying uh, things like, like that as well. My question for you is about the Intuit. Uh, and uh, before we go today, I want to make sure that our audience here understands that those what that is and what those aha moments can mean uh, in their lives. Uh, but, and to preface it with the, the what am I missing and having those intuit moments. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the title of the book is I Never Thought of It That Way, uh, inspired by what I think of as I Never Thought of It That Way moments, which are simply defined as moments where you think or say, huh, I never thought of it that way. As I was researching and writing the book, I spent a couple months journaling as many of those moments in my own life as I could because I wanted to have an awareness of something that we usually don't have an awareness of, which is all those times that something enters your consciousness and you can feel the impact in your head. 
you know, we, we learn new ideas all the time, but only some ideas above a certain bar do we feel. And there is a sensation. There's a mental sensation. To me, it's the feeling of a door being opened somewhere behind me and suddenly a stuffy room becomes less stuffy and there's a breeze. And I didn't even know that I was in a stuffy room. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, there's like things I got to revisit now because of what I just heard. Whoa. Right. And so what'll happen in, I never thought of it that way moments is something, something lands in your mind. For all you know, the next day it could get dug out of the ground. Or after a week, it could shift your thinking on something in small ways. Or after 15 years, it could change your whole life. Um, but, but being aware of those moments gives us kind of a superpower. We can learn how to chase them. And, um, I, I talk about the four steps to curiosity. And one of them is gathering a wide ranging set of knowledge, putting yourself into environments where you are likely to be surprised. You will have more, I never thought of it that way moments, which will lead you to take, all of us have uh, thoughts and perspectives that are essentially kind of one-dimensional. We just don't realize it, two-dimensional. And then, and I never thought of it that way moment. One of the things it can do is it can turn a square into a cube. And suddenly you're like, oh, there's another way to look at this. <laughs> what? <laughs> and you may not agree with it, but now you get it. And uh, I was at the... Um, the Smithsonian Museum of American History in D.C. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and they had the page of the screenplay in The Wizard of Oz where it went from black and white to color. I think it's a little bit like that, too. When you, when you, when you kind of get that there are other ways to look at things, oh, my gosh, and that makes sense. I don't agree with it. doesn't line up with my experience. But, hey, it's complex, isn't it? And that's part of what makes us see our world better. At this point, uh, I want to do a couple things. I know that Sangeeta will want to give you a proper thank you and certainly thank you from us. I do want to acknowledge our partners again and give them a big thanks as well. To everyone who's been watching on our Facebook live stream, thank you for doing that. For those of you on our Zoom call today, thank you for joining us today. The Center for the Political Future will be holding another Zoom this Friday with U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski. There's constant events coming out of our offices, so we encourage you to also sign up for the newsletter. You'll see that link available in the chat as well. Uh, but on my behalf, uh, Monica, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world today. It is desperately needed. Your book mm -hmm. is a must read. It really is. I've read dozens of books in this subject area. Yours thank is you. one of the best, uh, and I appreciate wow. that, that you took the time to do that and be so vulnerable uh, with us today. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, and hope to see you at USC sometime soon. <laughs> oh, yes, that'd be fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.